The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We're continuing on in our Life of David series called After God's Heart. And um, as we do so, I thought I'd begin by looking at a, another man's journey. Um, Steven Spielberg is arguably the most successful director in the history of Hollywood. He has directed over 30 films that have grossed together, uh, it's just astounding, but um, over $10 billion at the box office. Okay? Just stop and think about that. $10 billion. Um, just to name some of his film credits, he's directed Jaws, Jurassic Park, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and that whole Indiana Jones franchise, uh, Saving Private Ryan, uh, Schindler's List, just to name a few of his box office successes. And the thing is, we, we tend to think of a Spielberg movie as just pure box office fun, right? Um, but what we may not know is that many of Spielberg's films were his attempt to deal with the brokenness of his childhood, particularly his broken relationship with his father. Um, and so I want to show you a number of collected scenes from a 2017 documentary simply entitled Spielberg, uh, in which Spielberg discusses his relationship with his father and how it affected his career as a filmmaker. Um, as with some other videos that I've been showing lately, this is sort of a compilation of about a half dozen scenes from the documentary. And so I apologize if at times it seems a little bit disjointed. Uh, but recognize that it's not all one continuous scene, but it's about six different scenes from the documentary sort of spliced together. And just a note, if you happen to be listening on the podcast, um, we will be posting this video onto our church website under the media link uh, where the sermon is so that uh, you can watch this video later um, if you're not here with us in the service. So let's go ahead and take a look at that video and then we'll go on. As a child, I spent a lot of my time watching television or listening to soundtrack albums or just sitting around looking at the clouds. My dad was always on me for that. He did not like me getting C's. But school was not a place I was really drawn to. Steve was a kid that was sort of watchful and tentative and in some ways hesitant. You know, he, he wasn't like the normal kids in the neighborhood. He wasn't the muscle guy. You know, he, he got bullied a lot. That was tough. Most of my demons were self-inflicted wounds. There were things inside myself, the way I saw myself. I didn't have a, a lot of high esteem for myself, I, you know, growing up. I just was a lonely guy. I think that explained a lot of why and how he was compelled to make movies. It was not just a means of expression, but it was a means of escape, and it was a means of um, sometimes 
making friends with people that you couldn't otherwise or getting to hang out with girls that you might not be able to otherwise or just finding a way to have meaning. The camera was my pen. I wrote my stories through the lens. And when I was able to say action and cut, I wrested control of my life. But I didn't know anything about whether I was going to have a career or where this was going to go. I just knew that it filled up the time and it gave me a tremendous amount of satisfaction. And the second I finished the movie, I wanted to start a new one because I felt good about myself when I was making a film. But when I had too much time to think, all those scary whispers would start start up. It was not fun to be me in between ideas or projects. And so I think, in, in a sense, Close Encounters is maybe the most, at least certainly the most personal film I had made up to that point because it was also about the dissolution of a family. I remember when we moved to Northern California from Arizona. I had a sense that things weren't going well with my parents. And one day my dad just broke down. And I never had seen my dad cry before. And I just stood there in the kitchen, outraged. And my father was not a man. He was crying like a little boy. And I started screaming, cry baby, at him as loud as I could. I just started screaming, cry baby, you cry baby, you cry baby, until they pushed me out of the kitchen. Why? Why? My mom went from being completely joyful and, and celebrative about life itself to being full of despair and, and, and palpable sadness. I would see my mom going into the living room and playing some Schumann and crying. And crying to the point she couldn't see the notes on the paper. I'd sit with her, hold her hand, talk to her. She just said, I'm so lonely here. I'm so sad here. I was going through the same thing. And all I knew was that my dad was fulfilled up there and we weren't. So when it was announced by my mom that my mom and my dad were splitting up, I didn't know any of the details. I didn't know why they were splitting up. And I didn't for a long time. I didn't want to know. Steve really thought my dad left us. So during a number of years, we blocked him out. Uh, and, and Steve, I know, blamed him for the relationship going bad. It was literally the worst period of my entire life. I never told my dad I was mad at him. We never had angry words, but there was an estrangement that I created, not for my dad. He was seeking a relationship with me. I just went off and got lost in my work. The way I saw my dad get lost in his, all those years of coming home late and working weekends back in Phoenix and all of that, I became my father. I became a workaholic. And I just uh, lost the contact with him. Went on for 15 years.
originally, my idea for E.T. didn't include an extraterrestrial. It was going to be about how a divorce affects childhood and how it really kind of traumatizes children. to take us out to the ball games and take us to the movies. We'd have popcorn fights. So the overriding theme was going to be about how do you fill the heart of a lonely child? Me, human. Mm. Boy. Mm. Elliot. And what extraordinary event would it take to fill Elliot's heart after losing his dad? It would take something as extraordinary as an extraterrestrial coming into his life. Stephen had a complicated relationship with his father, but he was starting to reconnect and realize that his first impressions and a lot of the things he had weren't necessarily true. It was complex for me for a long time, but at least I had a art form that I could, I could filter it through. At least I had that. If, if, if movies did anything for me, it, it, I've avoided therapy because movies are my therapy. Junior? Yes, sir. And this father-son obsession I've had in my movies obviously speaks to a, a great deal of feelings that I've been carrying with me that I want to unburden myself of, and I have. Do you remember the last time we had a quiet drink? Hmm? I had a milkshake. Hmm? What did we talk about? We didn't talk. We never talked. The absent father has haunted Stephen throughout his life, and he has fictionalized it in all kinds of ways on film. It's the heart of him. Although I like the movies, I noticed the absence of the father quite significantly for a long time. Steve was very mad at me. There he is. Get a hug? I was hurt by it, but quietly hurt. Confusing handshake? Kicking the teeth? I didn't broach it with Stephen. I just ate it up a little bit uh, and hurt a little bit. I thought I'd lost you, boy. My dad and I finally resolved our differences, and we're probably closer now than we ever were before. When he made Saving Private Ryan, he said, I made this for my dad, and that was wonderful. That made me feel warm right here. kind of fascinating to go back to all of Spielberg's movies, and I'd invite you to rewatch all of them, okay, and see them through this lens of a broken family. And it's something that you very easily could have missed in all of his films, but it's there. This just unending exploration of broken families that Spielberg is exploring through his movies. Um, particularly the broken father-son relationship. And so in movie after movie, Spielberg explored the meaning of an absent father and how it affects the son. 
It's kind of crazy to think that his original idea for E.T. didn't even involve an extraterrestrial because all he wanted to do was make a movie about how divorce impacts a child. And as he said in that clip that you saw, what would it take to fill the heart of that child, that lonely child? You know, Spielberg's search for meaning and understanding of his childhood years reveals how important our past is, informing who we are, and the long shadow that that past casts deep into our adulthood. How did my early life experiences shape the person that I became? In our exploration of the life of David, we're now in the latter years of his life. He's no longer this young underdog coming out of of obscurity. He is now a middle-aged man, a battle-hardened veteran of many wars. He is now the ruling king of Israel. And these should have been his golden years, enjoying the fruit of his hard work and rewarded for his patience of waiting on God's timing to give him everything that he had promised in his younger life. But instead, as we saw last week, these latter years would be filled with more heartache and pain. And much of that pain was self-inflicted. And much of the pain in David's life in these latter years centered around his family. His deepest pain in all of that would be caused by his broken relationship with his son, Absalom, which we're going to look at today and next week. Last week, we saw how David's eldest son, Amnon, became lovesick for his half-sister, Tamar, resulting in Amnon eventually tricking Tamar into his bedroom, where, sadly, he raped her. And Tamar's brother, Absalom, waited patiently for two years until he finally had an opportunity to exact revenge, and he killed Amnon. And through it all, David reveals himself to be an absolutely inept father who seems literally paralyzed by these circumstances and sits there and does nothing in the midst of all of the chaos that's unfolding in his children. And so at the end of chapter 13, Absalom seeks sanctuary in Gesher, where his grandparents live. And there he will remain for three years. When David sinned sleeping with Bathsheba and then killing her husband Uriah, God told David that as a result of that sin, God would visit David's house with trouble for generations to come. And before we get into the text that I want to look at today, which will start largely center around 2 Samuel 14, um, I want to say a few words about this whole idea of intergenerational sin because it's everywhere in the, in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Numbers 14, 18, I think, illustrates the idea of intergenerational sin really well. It says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the, sins of the, for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, it sounds like what God is saying 
is that God will punish even innocent children, not for any sins that they might have committed themselves, but for the sins of their parents or even earlier ancestors. But the problem with that interpretation is that we also get verses like Deuteronomy 24, 16, which says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So in verses like this, God clearly establishes that each person is responsible and for their own guilt of their own sin and not the sins of others. So how do we resolve this seeming contradiction? Well, what I would say is this. We find numerous passages in the Bible that talk about the way that sinful behaviors seem to get passed on from one generation to the next. Therefore, God's judgment is in response to this compounding of sin through these generations in a single family. Let me give you some examples of that. Leviticus chapter 26, 39 says, Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins. Also because of their ancestors' sins, they will waste away. So in this verse, God clearly points to both the sins of the people he's addressing as well as the sins of their ancestors as the source of the judgment that God is bringing on them. Together as generations the guilt of sin is on them. Here's another passage that I think illustrates this principle. Jeremiah 16, verse 10 through 12 says this, When you tell these people all this and they ask you, Why has the Lord decreed such a great disaster against us? What wrong have we done? What sin have we committed against the Lord our God? So before we go on, Jeremiah is addressing head-on the question that we're exploring in this issue of intergenerational sin. When we are being punished by God, what is to blame for that? And look at what it says in verse 11. Then say to them, it is because your ancestors forsook me, declares the Lord, and followed other gods and served and worshipped them. They forsook me and did not keep my law, but you have behaved more wickedly than your ancestors. See how all of you are following the stubbornness of your evil hearts instead of obeying me. In other words, God tells the people of Israel that his wrath is upon them, both as a result of the sin of their ancestors, as well as their own sin, which is even exceeding their ancestors. In other words, there is this intergenerational cursing and blessing that isn't simply about arbitrary punishments and rewards, but for something that is a result of choices made within single families through the generations. It is, in other words, it is like an inheritance of sin that gets handed on from one generation to the next. And it talks about the specific ways that sin can stain a family tree for many generations. Author and pastor Peter Scazzaro came to real, realize this truth as he studied his own family tree and saw the impact that sin had from one generation to the next. He discovered 
through research that his maternal grandfather was a horrible womanizer that despite being married to his grandmother openly kept other women and was just horrible to his children that he neglected all of his life. His friends used to say that he treats his dogs better than his own children. And speaking on the impact that this man would have on his daughter who became Schizero's mother, Schizero writes of his mother, she never had a childhood and carried the emotional scars of her abuse into our family. Giving and receiving love, enjoying life, Fun, laughter, playfulness, joy were unknown to her. She struggled with depression and feelings of profound loneliness her entire life. So we see that sin passed on to his parents' generation. And as a result of the brokenness of his mother, there was this unspoken rule in his house, which was simply this. Do everything to keep mom happy. And what a burden to place on a young child. Schizero says that he basically became his mother's caregiver. And so the whole family, including the young children, had to rally around to try to protect her and make sure that she always stayed happy. And because of that, that dysfunction and that sin carried on into his generation, his life. Because he grew up always preoccupied with his mother's moods, and needs. He never learned how to process his own emotions and needs, which as an adult ended up causing all kinds of problems in his ministry as a pastor and in his family life. And because he never once, he says, saw modeled a healthy, joyful marriage in all the extended family, he didn't know how to have a healthy marriage of his own. What I'm saying about all of this is simply this, that sin gives rise to more sin. And what life shows us, as well as the Bible, is that when it comes to sin, all of us are both victims and offenders. We are sinned against, and we sin against others all the time. Eugene Peterson says this, Suffering has a history and it helps to know it. The difficulties that come into our lives aren't arbitrary intrusions. They're elements in a complex web of interconnecting sins and mercies. This doesn't mean that we can diagram lines of causation or responsibility in suffering. What we need to know is that suffering is neither an impersonal fate nor a cut-and-dried moral punishment. We've Implicated, we're implicated in a world of sin, sometimes ours, sometimes others, and therefore in a world of suffering. In other words, what Peterson is saying is there are no simplistic answers about causation when it comes to sin. We live in a fallen world in which we are impacted by the sins of others, and our own sin affects those around us, even into the next generation. And that's very true as it played out in David's life. David failed as a husband and as a father, sleeping with another woman and killing her husband in an attempt to hide that sin. And then his son Amnon will end up raping his own daughter, Tamar. And in response, Absalom, his other son, will kill Amnon. And on and on it will go in this sad chain of sin from one generation 
to the next. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? (laughs) This is a pretty depressing picture, isn't it, of the way life is in a broken world. Now I want to turn our attention to chapter 14 of 2 Samuel. And as we pick up the story in chapter 14, Absalom is still banished in Geshur. And he doesn't dare return to Jerusalem because he's afraid of what his father David might do to him if he meets him. David's nephew Joab is frustrated by this struggle between David and his son Absalom and their inability to reconcile with one another. And so Joab decides as a relative to do something about it. And so starting in verse 1 through 3 of 2 Samuel 14, it says, Joab, son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you are in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. And so obediently, this widow of Tekoa goes to David and tells the story that Joab told her to tell. And in verse 5 to 7, it says, The king asked her, What is troubling you? She said, I am a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant, they say. They say, hand over the one who has struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the heir as well. They would put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. At the heart of this woman's story is this choice between justice and mercy. Would David side with the clan that demanded the death of his brother? Or would he side on the side of mercy and protect the surviving son so that this woman does not lose two sons in this tragedy? David chooses mercy and reassures the woman that he will issue an order from the throne to ensure the safety of her surviving son. And in verse 13, this is how the woman replied. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. In other words, you chose mercy and guaranteed the safety of my son. But you don't do the same for your own son, Absalom. Why can't you show him mercy? It's kind of funny because at this point in the story, David smells a rat. He's like, I've been through this before. (laughs) And so in verse 18 to 19, it says, Then the king said to the woman, Don't keep from me the answer to what I am going to ask you. Let my lord the king speak, the woman said. The king asked, Isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? (laughs) And so the widow confesses to everything and admits that Joab was the one behind the scheme 
And so David calls Joab into his presence. And this is what happens in verse 21 to 22. The king said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Go, bring back that young man, Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honor. And he blessed the king. Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favor in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. It's interesting. This is now the second time in David's life where his own life situation was put into the perspective of a fictional story. The first was when Nathan, the prophet, told the story of a rich man who stole a sheep from a poor man to expose David's sin against Uriah when he slept with Bathsheba. And now through this widow, David is confronted with his refusal to forgive Absalom. And for the second time, David comes to his senses and humbly accepts the rebuke. Or at least, that's what it looked like at first. But then it becomes clear that David is still not ready to reconcile with his son Absalom. Because this is what happens in the following verses in 23 to 24. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. In other words, David will allow his son back to Jerusalem, but he will not allow Absalom to enter into his presence. David says, he will not ever see my face. For two years, Absalom will live in Jerusalem, forbidden to see the face of his father. This becomes unbearable for Absalom. And so he asks Joab, his cousin, for help to resolve the situation. But we don't know why, but for some reason, Joab totally ignores Absalom. And so Absalom does this dramatic step of setting Joab's field on fire to get his attention. And sure enough, Joab comes knocking when his field is burning. And it says in verse 31 to 32, Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so I can send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. You see, his father's rejection is unbearable to Absalom. And so he asks Joab, intervene for me and ask David that I might have an audience with my father. And there is this tone of both defiance and desperation in Absalom's words because by all indications, Absalom thought that killing Amnon was actually just punishment for the crime that Amnon committed against his sister Tamar. And he was simply carrying out the justice that his father refused to deliver. In fact, in verse 27, we're told that Absalom named his own daughter Tamar. It was as if he wanted to send the message to all of Israel. My sister will not be forgotten. Her name will be 
remembered and what was done to her. But what Absalom in essence argues is this, if my father does not see it that way, he actually says, I would rather have my father kill me than to go on living like this under his constant judgment and rejection. I want you to notice something. Absalom is not demanding forgiveness here. He's not. But being shunned like this is too much for him. And so he would rather face his father's judgment and be put to death by his father's own hand than to continue living rejected by his father like this. Eugene Peterson comments on this struggle between David and his son Absalom, and he says this. Absalom stood in banishment. He was home, but he wasn't home. This was no life, just to be permitted to exist. He wanted acceptance, a personal word of forgiveness. He wanted his father's love. He needed more than food and drink for survival. He required grace and mercy in order to live. At first, he was simply glad to be back, but gradually he came to realize that he needed far more than a piece of royal legislation in his favor. He needed a father. What a profound statement this is on the need of the human heart for the love and acceptance of a father. Absalom would have preferred death at his father's hand than to go on living under his constant silence and rejection. So Joab replies, uh, relays Absalom's request to King David. And actually at first, David seems positively uh, attuned to what his son wants. In verse 33, it says, So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom. And he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. For the first time in five years, Absalom is invited to see his father's face. And in that encounter, Absalom falls to the ground puts his face into the ground, an act of total humility and surrender. And it looks like David has finally accepted his son. But there are subtle hints that this isn't the reconciliation that Absalom longed for. Unusually, David is referred to not by name as he is in almost the entire David story, But in all of these verses, it repeats over and over again that David is called the king. In other words, the message seems to be that the acceptance that Absalom received that day was not the acceptance of a father welcoming his son back, but the cold acceptance of a king to a subject. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew word that is used for David kissed Absalom, it actually describes a kiss that is much more distant and impersonal than a kiss of intimacy. David Wolpe comments on this, and he says this, 
Notice that Absalom is not kissed by his father or by David. He is kissed by, quote, the king. In a single verse, David is referred to as the king three times. A father's bearing in a moment of presumed reconciliation has reverberations in the psyche of any child. Given what we will see later in David's mourning for Absalom, this scene suggests not a lack of love, but something worse, a refusal to love. There is an almost monstrous quality in his self-restraint with his own child. It is not anger which implies intimacy, but the cold, cloaked dissociation of a man whose heart is unavailable to himself and therefore to his child. What powerful words. Do you hear that? The great sin of David was not that he didn't love Absalom, because later we're going to see how much he loved Absalom. But he refused to give this love to his son in a moment when his son needed it more than ever. David genuinely loves Absalom, but he cannot bring himself to show his love or to forgive him in the way that Absalom so desperately longs for. And so it's not surprising that not long after this encounter, we see the impact that David's hardened heart would have on his son. In chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, we find these events. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. You see, Absalom is no longer interested in reconciliation with his father. If his father has hardened his heart toward him, then Absalom will harden his heart toward his father. And so Absalom begins a campaign against David, trying to turn the Israelites against him. It's interesting and noteworthy that Absalom's main point of attack against his father's character is on David's lack of interest in administering justice. Because why? Because this was the very issue that drove a wedge between him and his father. Because basically what Absalom was saying is, it was, if it was unjust in killing Amnon, then kill me. But all you do, Dad is withdraw in silence. You were silent when my sister was violated, and now you stew in silence and resentment against me. What kind of father are you? 
What kind of king are you? And what began as a private family matter of a broken relationship between a father and a son will now plunge the entire nation into chaos, as we're going to see next week. And this is the sad truth, is that, unfortunately, this story is played out over and over again in every generation. People who care about each other so deeply, but are utterly unable to show that love to one another and reconcile no matter how painful the alternatives may be. I want to ask you this today. Can you identify with the struggle of David and Absalom? Because I know I can. I know that there have been seasons in my marriage, rough patches, where Betty and I have hurt one another pretty deeply. And I know that there are moments when we are trying so hard to reconcile. And all of Betty's body language is asking for a hug, asking for me to show some leadership and make the first move. But if I'm really honest with you, there have been those moments where I refused that hug. And instead, I gave her the cold shoulder just to show her how angry I was at her and how hurt I was by her. There have also been moments with my children where I think they realized I was unhappy with them because of something they'd done. And I could sense them reaching out to me and really in their own way just asking for some security that I still love them and cared about them. But if I'm really honest, there have been those times where I refused that comfort of the fatherly love. And I refused them love and acceptance because it just felt too risky to me to humble myself. So instead, I chose silence. Instead, I chose composure and distance, and formality. That embrace, that forgiveness, those words of encouragement or acceptance, why are they so hard for us? Why? Just imagine how different things could have turned out for David if he could have genuinely embraced his son in that moment where his son was reaching out for him asking, begging for the same mercy and restoration that God had shown him when he had committed the exact same sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And yet David, the recipient of that mercy, could not show that same mercy to his own son. It didn't happen that way. There was no reconciliation because that's not the world we live in, is it? The world we know is a world of stiff hugs and cold kisses, a world of words left unsaid, of people unwilling to be the first to humble themselves 
and to seek reconciliation. But this is what the Bible says. This is what the gospel says. That God broke into that cold world to show us a love that is unlike any other love that we experience in this world. You know, hearing this story of failed reconciliation between David and Absalom, I think, reminds us of another story of an estranged father and son. It's the story that Jesus told not long before he would go to the cross. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of a father who represents God, who was so deeply hurt by his son in unimaginable ways. And yet in that pain as the son leaves, disgracing his father, all the father can do is scan the horizon in the hope that one day his son might return home. And when the son finally returns home, ready to make a deal with his father to become an employee of the estate, he isn't met with a cold reception or a stiff formal handshake. We find these words in Luke 15, verse 20 to 24. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Jesus tells us this story to tell us how different his love is from our own love. How much God would humble himself in order to restore what was broken between us and him. And through Jesus, we have a reconciliation with God, the most important relationship that was broken in our lives. And here's the truth. It's hard for us to believe that God could really be like this. Because none of us experience love, this pure, this unconditional, in all of our other relationships in our life. And so it takes faith to believe in this gospel, that God is this loving, this accepting of sinners like us. By faith, we must believe in this radical love of God, that God accepts us fully, and unconditionally, and reconciles us to himself totally because of what Christ has done for us. And I'm going to say this. It is only when we experience love like this from God that we can have the courage to love others as he has loved us. Let's pray. As I said just a moment ago, um, the story of David and Absalom is played on repeat 
over and over again in every generation. Something so sad and heart-wrenching about two people that so love one another and yet are miles and miles apart. Later when David will mourn Absalom, he will cry out this gut-wrenching cry of a father. My son, my son, my son, Absalom. My son, my son. But he could never show that love to his son when his son was alive. And so he can only see it as a memorial in his death. This is the brokenness of the world that you and I live in. It's a world filled with pain of loneliness because there's just too much pride in our hearts to be the first one to make a move toward the people we love and say, I have done wrong. Forgive me. But God breaks into the brokenness of our world to show us his love. And God humbled himself by sending his own son to die naked on a cross for your sins and mine. And God says, I'm not above that. I will embarrass myself and humiliate myself to show you my love for you, my unconditional love for you. So as we get ready to close out our service in response of prayer, can I invite you to pray that prayer before God and to say, God, there is a lot of brokenness in my life of people I love that I feel are drifting away from me. And there is just this stubborn pride in me that refuses to humble myself and to reach out in love. There is just this stubbornness that refuses to forgive, refuses to show mercy. And my hardness is causing hardness in that person. And I don't like what I see. What can heal me of this, God, but your love for me? Let me understand your love for me, that my heart can be broken by that love. And in that tenderness, I can be tender to the people that need my love so much. Would you just pray that for a few moments as our worship team leads us in a time of response?